AI in Action is brought to you by Aulis International, covering your business's staffing, consulting, and networking needs. Our host brings you the leading minds in AI, sharing their story, their success, and their advice. Focusing on fast-tracking you to the top, AI in Action cuts through the hype to help you kickstart your data science career. To listen to the latest AI in Action podcast, head over to www.aldis.com forward slash podcast, or subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Podcasts. You're listening to AI in Action. I'm your host, JP Valentine. Our guests today are Anna Coonan and Anne Bauer from the New York Times. Anna is lead data scientist and Anne is the director of data science. Welcome to the show. Thank Hello. you. Thanks for having us. Of course, my pleasure. Um, so I, I want to start with a brief introduction and background of, of both of you, just to get some insight into your journey into tech, some of the roles you've held along the way, taking us up to your current position at the time. So Anna, if you wouldn't mind, give us a, a quick overview of yourself. Um, sure. So I came to tech and more specifically data science, um, like a lot of people do, via um, a career in academia. So um, I got my PhD at NYU in um, cognitive psychology where I was using computational models, including models very much inspired by machine learning, um, to understand how people learn about the world and make decisions. Um, And I kind of picked up some statistical modeling and machine learning and coding techniques along the way. So I think I was fairly well positioned to careers in either academia or data science at the end of it. Um, I very much loved doing research, um, and I was seriously considering an academic career. Um, But when it came time to decide about next steps, I was kind of discouraged a little bit by the academic job market. And I also found the um, working style a little bit solitary, solitary, which made me look into data science. Um, I actually started at the Times via an internship just after I um, defended my dissertation. Um, And I just really loved it there um, and started a full-time position there uh, very shortly after. So in my career at the Times, I've worked across lots of um, different projects, including content recommendations, some work on advertising, some work with marketing, and I just started some work for the for the newsroom as well. Excellent. Thank you for that, Anna. Really appreciate it. And for yourself? Yes, I also come to data science from academia. Uh, my background is in physics. I worked for a number of years in uh, doing postdocs in uh, astrophysics and cosmology, working on large-scale uh, sky surveys and doing a lot of compu- computer science, big data type of uh, calibration work um, to take these large data sets and um, reduce them to a well-understood and manageable um, data set on which we could uh, do statistical analyses. And so I really enjoyed uh, that type of work in understanding the data and uh, it's really data science uh, fundamentally uh, writing a lot of Python code to um, to do this and so it was a very natural transition for me to go from that type of uh, hands-on research into a data science role. I, I wasn't really sure what data science entailed um, but I knew that I wanted to keep um, doing this type of data intensive research. So I did the uh, Insight Data Science Fellowship Program, which really uh, introduced me more into data science. This was back in 2015 when data science is, um, I think, a significantly smaller field, but very rapidly growing. So that gave me really good context into what types of jobs were available. And then after that, I started working at the Times. Like Anna, I 
worked on a lot of different types of projects at the times. And then about a year and a half ago, I started leading the algorithmic recommendations team there, which is a cross-functional team of uh, data science, engineering, and analytics that works on content recommendations. Thank you very much. Um, so that's a good background of both of you, and it's great to hear how, how different paths have both led you to the same place, because it, it just gives evidence that there's no one process or no one path that you need to follow in order to, to land a specific role. Um, and I want to start with yourself, um, a question around what's happening at the Times in regards to content personalization. Um, as we see the world moving closer and closer to personalization of, of news content, social media, advertising, can you give us some insight into what you guys are working on at the Times to, to uh, personalize what we see as readers and subscribers? Yes, uh, one reason I really enjoy working on content recommendations at the Times is because we work together with the newsroom on how best to use algorithms and personalization to really fulfill the intent of the newsroom editors. People usually read the Times because of the editorial judgment that goes into the promotion of our articles. And so our goal on our algorithmic recommendations team has been to combine this judgment and this insight with algorithms to really get the best of both worlds. So for example, um, we're never going to personalize important breaking news events that everyone should be aware of. But at the same time, the Times publishes hundreds of articles every single day. And we want to use personalization to make sure that they can all reach the people who are interested in them. So for example, uh, we work with uh, editors who typically might curate just a set of three articles that will show up in a block on the website. But working with personalization, they might curate a longer list of articles that then would be appropriate for that block, which we can use as candidates for personalization. This workflow of algorithmically recommending articles from manually curated lists is one that we've been using for years, and we are continuing to improve on it. Uh, and it's a great way to make sure that we're recommending appropriate content in the right places. Um, this type of workflow also guards against the common concern of filter bubbles, where you only see content on a narrow set of topics or a narrow view that exactly matches your reading history. Uh, by drawing from distinct sets of candidates from for different parts of the website, we can make sure that we're always showing a variety of content to our readers. Um, also, we make great use of an algorithm that Anna built that uh, enforces a breadth of topics within a set of recommended results. Uh, we want our readers to be aware of the wide variety of content that the Times publishes. So we really put a lot of focus on these different ways to promote a breadth of engagement. Thank you for that. It's it's great to hear the work that you guys are doing on the inside to, to fight against the current of that filter bubble, um, because we know it's it's something that is is existing on, on many other platforms. Talking on personalization, a, a lot of the personalization is driven by third party data that's being bought and sold as a commodity, which uh, organizations then use to target uh, uh, users. Um, I'd love to understand what you guys are working on on the data governance side, and particularly how you're you're moving towards a different way of of targeting um, readers and subscribers with advertising. 
Yeah, um, I can speak to that a little bit. So, so just to, first of all, add on to what Anne was just talking about, when we are talking about uh, content recommendations, we only use um, data that we have available on a first party basis. So we don't use any third party data for that. And um, um, as far as I know, we never have. Um, however, broad, more broadly speaking, The Times is actually in the middle of a, a company-wide effort um, away from using third party data across uh, our marketing and advertising efforts um, and moving towards a, a first party data approach. So primarily just using data um, that we collect on our own users on our site, not looking at what they're doing on other sites. Um, so um, one step for this uh, last year was that we removed all third party tracking pixels. Um, and these are pixels like trackers from Facebook and Twitter, for example, um, from our homepage, our section fronts, and our article pages. Um, and that means that we are no longer sharing um, what New York Times articles users are reading with these other platforms. So we used to share this data, we no longer share this data. And this obviously helps protect our users' privacy in that sense. Um, from a machine learning perspective, it actually also means that we now have some new um, challenges when it comes to um, market on those other platforms. Um, and this is actually an area where we're working on using machine learning solutions to increase our ability to do effective marketing on, say, Facebook and Twitter that doesn't use this data. Um, so that's been leading to some interesting challenges for us. Um, the Times is also looking to completely stop using third-party data to show targeted ads on our website by next year. Um, that is our goal right now, remove um, third-party advertising by next year. Um, and to replace these third-party ads, because obviously advertising is a really important part of our um, uh, revenue uh, strategy, um, we're actually also using data science um, to help us build first-party-based user segments. Um, and so. Similar to third party, we want to um, provide our advertisers with the chance to find the right audiences for their products. Um, but we are now building out um, these segments based only on um, first party data. Um, it's worth saying that not only is this approach actually more privacy friendly for our users, we also often actually have more high quality data available from first party data sets. So if anyone there, there is concerned about uh, uh, making that switch, we've actually find that first-party data is is of really high quality compared to sometimes the rather messy landscape of of third-party segments that you might buy from from another company. Um, um, finally, we're actually also building advertising products um, that don't rely on user information at all, so non-personalized advertising, um, and that use features of, for example, the article or the section. Um, that we're showing advertisements next to, um, something that we call contextual targeting. Um, and this is another area where we're using machine learning um, in creative ways to come up with new kind of privacy-friendly advertising strategies um, in a contextual targeting sense. Thank you for that, Anna. I really appreciate you you talking on that. And it, it's great to hear the advancements that the New York Times are, are, are making on our more privacy-focused um, services. Um, the two points we've touched on so far is what would impact the consumer, the reader, the subscriber. I'd love to understand what, what you guys are using internally that helps you achieve the, these new advancements. So some of the internal tools that your data science team utilizes to, to work on these projects. 
Yeah, so um, we do build a fair amount of internal tools. So obviously some of the things we do directly affect the user, like recommendations, but actually some of the earliest um, contributions by the data science team at the times have been internal tools and they continue to be internal tools. Um, we often use Slack bots, for example, um, which we've, we've used them really extensively and, and they've been quite successful. Um, for instance, we have a Slack bot called Blossom. Um, we've had this one for a while. Um, it has a number of functionalities, but one of the things it does is that it um, alerts social media teams when a story that we publish is trending on Facebook or Twitter, and that can help them make decisions on what to promote on social media. Um, another example is um, in the algorithmic recommendations team that Anne mentioned earlier already. Um, we built out a Slack bot, bot called AlgoBot, um, which can basically call our recommendation endpoints, um, so the API that we provide um, to um, personalize a list of articles. Um, and this bot can basically return some sample recommendations for a given user, any user you choose, any algorithm you choose, and a collection of eligible um, articles you want to recommend. And it returns basically um, a human readable formatted list of recommendations, not some giant JSON struct that would come out of our APIs normally. Um, and this has been really helpful just to help us test and debug issues with our algorithms. Um, but it also helps colleagues in our partner teams, like designers we work with, or product managers we work with, to really quickly check what the output of a recommendation call looks like. And, and it's been helpful in building trust actually with our internal stakeholders. Um, so another internal data science project I'm working on right now is a project called StoryCast. Um, so a new project um, that uses a set of predictive models to forecast traffic to our articles, looking at different channels. So a channel could be our homepage, Facebook, Twitter, and search. Um, and it looks at how we promoted an article, so how long we, it was on the homepage for, where we showed it on the homepage, which social accounts posted it, and things like that. Um, and then it predicts how much traffic that article should get. And by looking at the difference between the predicted and the actual traffic to an article, it provides a sense of how well we did at reaching our audience um, with a given article that we promoted. And then following that, it allows us to make more data-informed promotion decisions over time by learning from kind of patterns that the model is highlighting. So here we're not using machine learning to automate decision-making like we would when we're using algorithms to make recommendations, but we more use it as a way to augment the learning process that goes into editorial decisions. Lots of things go into those decisions, of course, but, but a model can be helpful to add another data point in the mix. Um, and right now, StoryCast actually also posts as a Slack bot. Um, we really like Slack bots. Um, and yeah, we'll build it out into some other functionalities, but it's working well so far. Great. Thank you. Um, the New York Times has invested heavily into data science, machine learning, analytics, insights, and um, we we see the advancements all the time, the improvements being made. One of my early podcasts was with uh, the New York Times um, a few years ago, and even since then, it's continued to grow and evolve. It would be great to hear from you guys how, how did the, the evolution of the, the data team, the data science team, uh, from your time joining, um, what has changed? Uh, yes, I can speak to that. I've been at the Times for a little over five years now. Um, and in that time, a lot has changed. Uh, the, the data science group was a few years old when I joined. And uh, the team in its first years spent much of its time doing like one-off proofs of concept or analyses to demonstrate the value of data science and to point out opportunities for where it might make a significant impact in the business. 
during my first few years here, we mostly built models or internal tools for different groups within the times to interact with in a manual fashion. Um, for example, the Slackbot Blossom that Anna talked about originated as a project with the audience development team, uh, and it grew from there to be more advanced and, and more automated. Um, given the success of those projects, the company really has bought into integrating machine learning into standard processes. So Blossom, for example, now has a sibling used by the advertising team called Taffy. Uh, Taffy uses machine learning to choose social media posts and to optimize their spend. And it's really become a fundamental part of the marketing process here. Um, on the recommendations team, we're always testing different algorithms in production in a variety of different places on the web and the apps and in emails. And, and this type of work requires a much more robust data and engineering approach than before. So it's becoming more common for data scientists to be part of cross-functional teams of data scientists, data analysts, and engineers. And we all work together uh, on production systems for applied machine learning. Um, but really, it's not just about data science. Like, I want to make sure to point out that the success of data science really has been made possible by good data infrastructure that the data engineering and analytics groups have built up over the past few years. Um, when I started, we used a messy combination of AWS and a local Hadoop cluster, neither of which were properly maintained or optimized. So we ended up writing a lot of MapReduce jobs and when queries on large data sets were too inefficient. It was kind of fun to learn how to write MapReduce jobs, but it was very time consuming and it really should not have been necessary. Uh, then a few years ago, we made a huge switch and put everything on Google Cloud Platform and took that opportunity to really start fresh and make sure that the storage and the access were set up appropriately. And that has really made all the difference in the world. It allows us to, to poke around in the data without having to context switch between every data query because the data queries take 10 minutes. Um, and this kind of speed up and efficiency has made projects that were previously infeasible, uh, feasible. So I, I remember before when we were making the transition, I had been trying to run a job using Hive and it ran for more than 10 hours and then it died. And then the next day I tried it in our new system and it took like 30 minutes. And having this kind of quick and easy access to the data and also like higher level tables with cleaned up and standardized data have really been key to the success of data science at the times. I feel like people often skip over that part when talking about fancy machine learning projects, but it's really been stunning to see the difference that it makes in both the effectiveness and also just the experience of working as a data scientist. That's amazing. It's great to hear how, how it's evolved and, and how it plays such a pivotal role, not just on the tech side, but in every aspect of what's happening at the times. Um, it would be great to, to follow on that point then to talk about the, the various different career opportunities that have evolved and, and grown at the times, whether it's from data visualization to, to data engineering pipeline building to, you know, BI um, to pure data science and machine learning. Um, it'd be good to learn from you guys how how you see that evolved and, and what 
continued opportunities there are going to be for people who are passionate about tech, but also want to work at an organization with a, with a mission like the New York Times. So, like you said, we are indeed um, hiring in a lot of these roles you just mentioned. We have teams working on data visualization, um, obviously the data science team we are currently hiring as well. We also hire summer interns if you're interested. Um, keep an eye open for those um, ads. Um, and then we also, as of last year, I believe, have a machine learning engineering group. Um, so if you're a software engineer that's curious about working very closely together with data scientists on building out machine learning platforms, um, those are some um, opportunities there that we're building out currently. Um, and yeah, um, our analytics team is always growing, always hiring. Um, they're doing wonderful work. Um, so yeah, I would say there are a lot of interesting opportunities. So please do check them out um, on, our, on our job site. Thank you both for that. A final question for for each of you. I would love to, to get your take on what it's like to work at the New York Times and why you love it. You guys have both stayed there for quite a while now, which in an industry where we see people moving, you know, every 18 months to two years, you know, career longevity is, is a bit of an outlier more recently than before. What is it that you love most about working at the Times? I have really enjoyed just the people who I get to work with at the Times. I mean, obviously, it's inspiring to work at the New York Times. I mean, I've always been a fan of the paper. I've read it since I was little. And to work, well, back in the day, in the building and uh, see, you know, how is it's made and really be a part of that, if a small part of it, is, is really inspiring. Um, and to work with uh, everybody who is there because they care about the mission of the times and they know that it makes an impact. And it's it's a very kind of positive feeling environment to work in. And so it's something that it's, it's hard to trade for uh, working at a company that doesn't feel its own mission as strongly. Um, yeah, I completely agree with everything that Anne said. I think um, uh, the culture at the Times and the people it attracts um, have just made this a really, really wonderful place to work. Um, I would also say from the perspective of just um, the day-to-day -day work, something that I really love about my role is the variety of problems that we get to work on. So not only do we work with um, teams all throughout the business, which always creates new and interesting machine learning challenges, we also have um, a lot of opportunities to get um, quite deep into the engineering around um, productionizing machine learning models, which I personally, uh, it was new to me when I first started, but it turns out I really enjoy um, that side of the job. Um, and then also on the flip side, sometimes uh, some pro projects aren't engineering heavy at all, but because they are consumed by human beings, we have to worry about um, things like interpretability and communication of, of data science work, which is a challenge in and of itself. And I just have really enjoyed working on such a breadth of problems. Um, and it's really kind of tested and challenged me in many different ways. That's it, Anne, Anna, thank you both so much for your time. I really appreciate you coming on and talking to us about everything that's happening at the New York Times and the innovations with the data science team, uh, data governance, personalization, and the tools in which you're using to, to accomplish those uh, goals. So we really appreciate your time. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you. Thank for you. Us. Great. 
AI in Action is brought to you by Aulus International, covering your business's staffing, consulting, and networking needs. Aulus offer an exec search program. Aulus can help you discover how data science and AI can transform your company. With our unrivaled network of C-suite executives and senior AI professionals, we offer retained search services across the US and Europe. Get the Aldus advantage. Become a member of the Aldus community and enjoy some of the following. AI meetups. Once a month, our community gathers to listen to some of the leading experts in the world of data science and AI. Our speakers come from all over the world, including Dublin, Boston, and Frankfurt. We also have our AI mentors. Our experts will provide mentoring to Aldus members. And don't forget our AI in Action podcast. Each week we have guests from all over the world talking us through their education, career, and more. Become an Aldus member and get the Aldus advantage. For more information and to sign up for our newsletter, log on to www.aldus.com. That's www.aldus.com. Aldus International, empowering through AI.